Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crip, the crowdfunding podcast. Each week, I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, July 21st, 2014. And for the next six episodes, we'll be taking a little walk down memory lane with some of the coolest projects that you helped to fund. And during this week in history, in 1899, American author and war correspondent Ernest Hemingway was born. Dude, happy birthday. First up, a little French board game called Fief that the folks at Academy Games brought to America. Your family is destined for great things. You know it's true, but others stand in your way. Perhaps if you can find an ally with ties to royalty, or maybe the right marriage could secure a better title for your family, and the power you could find in the church, that can't be ignored either. And if it comes to it, you'll take your forces to war. How's it going, Uva? Hello, hello, hello. And I pronounce your game Fief. Yeah, Fief, exactly. Right, France, 1420. And this is... This is like what you'd call a reprint, right? Yes, it was printed in France in the 90s and then again in the early 2000s and then again in 2011. And then we tried it and loved it, made a bunch of additions, streamlines, changes, and now it's we're getting a lot of people just rebuying the game because it, we're trying to offer so much more, you know. Could you please tell me what the game is actually about? The game, what it is, is you're building up your family members and bringing them power and influence by trying to gain them both royal titles that are given by the king and ecclesiastical titles that are given by the church. Right. And your goal is that with these titles that gives you votes and all the players, when there are enough titles out there, royal titles and ecclesiastical, these players, the final end game is that they're trying to vote one of their family members to become king of France and another family member to be the Pope. And these give you the power and the victory you need to win. But this game is very difficult to win by yourself. So what the beauty is, is that you're making alliances with another player by marrying off one of your family members to one of their family members. Unfortunately, it's not a game for people who will never forgive you if you screw them over in the game. Because this is a game where, <laughs> you know, if you got to murder someone, you might just go out and try to murder them, you know. <laughs> and it's just the way it was in history. I didn't think you were doing reality games, Dow. I thought this was, you know. <laughs> yeah, Academy Games. We try to always. Yeah. What makes the game so much fun also is that... It's a map of medieval France, a section of it. And you're trying to control different villages and cities in France, which give you the voting power to vote then for the different titles and also where you can buy titles. But the problem with this is, is that the fief, which is a territory where you get a royal title, like a baron or an earl, you may control a fief. But a bishopric, which is the territory controlled by the bishops and the cardinals, they go over several fiefs. So several competing players may control territory in the same bishopric. Now, this is where the beauty is. 
if you are a bishop or cardinal of a bishopric, you can, of course, as a church, come in and levy tithes, church taxes, on all the players in that area. It's just a beautiful game because certain players, they'll be depending on their income, and all of a sudden you as a cardinal come in and say, I love you, I love all your people, and because you are an outstanding member of the church, pay me. Right. And it just brings such a beautiful dynamic to the game. And the same with the royal titles. They can tax their own fiefdoms. But if they do, then the peasants and the locals may revolt. It sounds like it's a lot about money and wealth and the collection of money and power. And, and votes. It's all about the votes. Influence, yes. I guess you would say, if you're talking about votes. and Exactly. Okay. It's money, influence, votes. Those three things, well, the money doesn't, but the influence and the votes and the power you gain wins you the game. And there's certain things that can dampen that, like maybe you're talking about the plague. Oh, when the plague hits, oh, it is, yeah. it's horrible because the plague, you'll be building up your people. You, you have one of your main power brokers in the game and all of a sudden the plague hits and there's a 50-50 chance he'll die and right. he loses everything. And if he's a church, ecclesiastical, that title goes away. If it's oh. royal, of course, if he has a son, it goes right to the son. Right. But it's a wonderful game. I guess since it stood the test of time, it has to be fun somehow. But I want your opinion on it. My daughter-in-law hates the game. Okay. She hates it with a passion. But what's wrong with her? Well, the first thing is that my daughter-in-law was forced to marry me. <laughs> I forced her into marrying me or else she knew it would go bad for her. Now, that didn't go over well because, unfortunately, she felt that I needed to ask her for a hand in marriage, which, in retrospect, maybe I could have done it a little better. Right. And as soon as we married and she got some of the benefits of our marriage, instantly my wife moves into her homeland and takes her capital. And she gets so <laughs> mad at my wife. And she's like sullen, sulky. She is mad at my wife. And the very next turn, my daughter just comes in from the other side and totally wipes her out. And she's like, why did you do that? And the only reason my daughter did was because she was sulking. Mm -hmm. And everybody's just laughing. They're dying laughing, having a good time, because it was just the most underhanded thing to do. Right. Of course, my daughter did well, except my poor daughter-in-law. She's not the type of person who <laughs> can take any type of conflict in any type of game. So I lose it. I tell you what, it was hilarious. You guys got playing the game and family dynamics mixed up, but I want to make sure you didn't lose a daughter-in-law over this one. Right after that, we played another game and she exacted her revenge. And I kept on telling her, you should not have a memory of past games. And she says, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not. And I'm going like, well, if you don't have a memory of past games while you're attacking me, she goes, oh, uh, no reason. Then she said some French word, you know, sacre pas or something like that. And I knew, I knew she was exacting her revenge. <laughs> this is interesting, man. The family dynamics at your house and how you mixed up business and pleasure somehow. And it didn't actually turn out so well. But, but you guys <laughs> moved on, though. You didn't cling to it forever. I mean, at least you haven't. But we have to see how the daughter-in-law. I mean, it's like when my wife, when we first married, we played a game called, it was Donald Trump. It was called Trump. Oh, no. 
actually was a good game. It was about okay, stocks, okay. stocks and bonds. You know, right. it was a, actually, we still really like it. But my wife, we were married maybe four or five months. And my, I was playing. My brother was there, someone else. And my brother just so underhandedly screwed her over. And my wife gets along with everybody. She loves the world. Everybody loves my wife. This is the only time it's ever happened, and it hasn't happened since. But she gets up and literally took the Donald Trump game and threw it into the fireplace. I think he has that effect on people, man. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you what, my brother died laughing. I died laughing. It was the same like my my daughter-in-law now. My wife, she refuses to buy me a new copy of that game. She says... She'll never forget it. And, you know, I'm making fun here because it is one of these games where it is very difficult to everybody to hold hands, have a friendly, nice, cooperative game and win. That's not what it's about. And this sounds like an incredible game. And I like the parts about people being either forced off to marry each other, which, you know, I'm thinking I'm around a lot of feminists sometimes, so that may not go over so well. And I'm I'm thinking about you can buy influence and and peddle votes and power and influence and then somehow maybe lose it all when it comes to the plague or war or famine or being taxed to death. What is so exciting about the Thief Kickstarter is we've totally redone the game where the components, the maps being expanded. But over the years that we've been talking, we've been this has been a project that's been in the line now for several years. Oh, okay. And we've been planning on doing expansions. We we're going to come out with the first game and then come out with an expansion game called the Templars. And then another expansion game about the Crusades and another expansion game about the Teutonic Knights in France. And these are all different times in French history. Right. And the Kickstarter campaign is doing so well. I mean, we're now nine times more than we we asked for right. that we started adding all these stretch goals to this campaign. So when people just buy the game, they're getting 14 extra stretch goals so far. Oh, we just passed another one this evening I just saw. So they're getting 15 incredible stretch goals. And of these 15 stretch goals, three of them are like major game expansions that we are going to sell as separate games. So it really is a good deal and the people who know the game they're just jumping on it because right so that's excitement and that's why it's blowing us away here we are a little game company in middle of ohio and this kickstarter is just exceeding all of our expectations i'd say if i were on kickstarter or i'd say if you're on kickstarter check out fief that's f-i-e-f france 1429 And if you can't find it there on Kickstarter, always go to djgrandpa.com where we have links for Academy Games. Uva, thanks for having the patience to explain the game to me, and I appreciate it very much. Thank you for taking the time, and thanks to all your listeners for maybe considering uh, looking at the game. Hi, I'm Giacomo Strollo. I'm the president and owner of the Strollo Design Company. Strollo Design is a product development firm located in San Diego, California. We've been developing products for our clients since we were founded in 2006. Our goal, though, has always been to develop and launch products of our own. And for the last several years, we've been developing smart jars, 
No, let me get the pronounce of your name one more time just so I have it on tape. Well, it's Italian. Giacomo. Giacomo. Okay. Oh, no, that's cool. I can say that. I'm American, so. I know. It doesn't It doesn't matter. But I, I think the inflection. I know, but Giacomo is cool. I probably Americanize it anyway, but it's still a cool name, man. It's definitely unique. Yeah, and it, and it makes you sound manly and strong, <laughs> Giacomo, and like, you know, you're running things, plenty of hair. <laughs> <laughs> it was Casanova's name, Giacomo. <laughs> See? I told you there was a lore there. There was a draw, you know? Smart are durable, transparent, airtight, and food safe. They're also patented and trademarked in the USA. How long has the, the company been in existence? Smart Jars is a, well, it's a spinoff of my engineering consulting firm. So I've been working as Stroller Design Company since I incorporated in 2006. Right. And yeah. I started developing Smart Jars pretty shortly after that. Probably around 2008 timeframe is when I first had the idea for them. And yeah. it's just been something I've been working on on the side for the last, probably up until the middle of last year. And then it finally got to the point where it started gaining some steam. And I had to say, hey, this is a legitimate product and we need to get it out in the marketplace. And that's when the real work begins. So, Do you feel there's a big need for smart jars? You know, absolutely. So, I, I mean, I developed a product that I couldn't find. I'm a hands-on builder type of guy. I have lots of, lots of stuff around that creates clutter, parts and pieces. Cause, a hacker. Yeah, I'm a hacker, you know. Well, the word these days is, you know, the big word is the maker community. So I'm in that space. I build stuff, whether it's food, you know, for cooking, you know, I have, I have different ingredients for everything I make, you know, the nuts and bolts or parts or pieces or whatever it is. And it's just all over the place. You know, you don't want to throw it away. You want to keep it and it sits in boxes and you never know what you have. And I've had this problem, well, since I was a little, little kid. For those who have not seen the Kickstarter video have not seen a picture of the product, why don't you maybe describe it and tell me exactly what the Smart Jar can do for me? So the Smart Jar, it's a 10-ounce plastic container with a nice tight lid on it. It's very durable. I don't consider it disposable. You put small stuff in it, close it up, seal it tightly, and it allows you to put it up on the wall and get your stuff basically organized and out of the cupboard and out of bins where it's just sitting there and right. disorganized. Clutter isn't pretty. Clutter doesn't help you make anything. Clutter doesn't help you use the stuff you have. So what we do is we get all this stuff, organize it, put it up on the wall, and... Almost in a pegboard system, right? I left out that key point. <laughs> there's three components to it. There's a jar, and there's a separate lid, and then there's a dock. So the dock actually snaps into pegboard. And so you have pegboard up on your wall and you put these docks and arrange them where you want them. And then you put all your stuff in this jar and then you put the jar up on the wall. If you were a female, a woman, what could you use this smart jar for? Women love this. They put it up on their pegboards in their craft rooms and they put buttons and zippers, you know, basically different components for sewing and crafting, whether they be, you know, like stickers or... It'll hold glitter. It'll hold any kind of small thing that you like to use for, like, crafting, for scrapbooking. Those are the kind of things that you'll put in this and actually get it up on the wall. And out of your drawers, it'll get it off of your desk or your work area. And it's really convenient to use because the way the product works is you can pop it off of the pegboard really easily and take it to wherever you're working with it and then open it up and dispense stuff out of it. It's really a simple product. It's like... You know, all of a sudden, it's like, 
wow, you know what? I need four drywall screws to mount something in my house. Well, I grab one of these and I take it in there and I don't have to worry about, you know, digging into a box and the screws getting all over the place. It's just a handy way to carry what you need to work with to where you're working. How has the Kickstarter community been treating you, man? You've been on for a while. We're confident we're going to hit it, but they're making us work for it, man. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that, but... Something I guess I could add is, you know, a lot of products hit Kickstarter before all the development's done, and we're done. I mean, we don't have the marketing spiel. We don't have the um, some packaging stuff worked out, but we have our injection molds. We did all the engineering. The product as is is ready to go out the door. All we got to do is turn on the injection molding machines. You know, I think that's great just from the perspective of, you know, it's low risk. You know, people don't have to worry about getting their parts. As long as we hit their goal, they're going out the door. They're going to ship. Okay, I see what you're saying. You're already developed, established. You're saying these aren't prototypes. And I, I look on your Kickstarter page right now, and you have estimated delivery U.S. December 2013. So you're like, I guess, like you said, ready to go. We can hit Christmas. That's what's kind of neat about this particular one is the parts themselves don't take a long time to mold. Once you turn the machine on, I mean, they just it's coughing up plastic parts one every 30 seconds or so. Right. So as soon as we hit the goal, we start molding. If anyone out there, you know, sometimes your house gets in disarray. There's stuff laying all over the place. It happens the same way at DJ Grandpa's house. And, you know, I guess if I could, if I would, it'd be cool to use smart jars. So go to kickstarter.com and check them out. To be truthful, I've tried just about every other organizational system. So, and, you know, with varying degrees of accuracy. So and if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll post links for Giacomo and his company, the Strollo Design Company. Dude, thanks for coming on the show, man. Thank you. Remember, we are the crowdfunding channel and we cover the globe. What's so great about records like this is the songs themselves. I mean, the players are great. Louis Armstrong and Oscar Peterson are some of my favorite players of all time, but part of the reason they sound so great is because they're not overplaying. They're just playing the song as it is, and it's a beautiful song, so it's easy to love. I'm Carsey, I'm here in New Orleans, in the Treme, and um, everything's really great. Everything's just peachy over here. How old are you, actually? I am 28 years old. Oh, yes, your Kickstarter. The way you represented yourself, I thought it was very exciting. I thought it was pretty cool, unique, and all that. Cool. A little cheeky, you know, a little bit, a little bit. I've been known to be a little cheeky from time to time. Serious? It's true. That's what they say about me. I've never used that word in my life, cheeky, before. (laughs) So I was just trying it out. You're right on. Now, you're also another one of these YouTube stars coming from one platform to another. I've been seeing it happen a lot over the months. A little bit, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) So, are they whispering on YouTube now that, dude, I heard on Kickstarter, it's like being a star all over again. Well, I wouldn't say I'm really a YouTube star. I have one music video that has a lot of hits, but I'm not actually in the video. So I think the area where my fans come from is actually live performance. So I've been touring and performing for about six years, doing at least 100 shows a year. And um, that's where most of my people come from, is seeing me play live. 
Now, if you're going to do a country album, you're going to yeah. have to increase that show amount by two. So oh, yeah? it's Because they, they do like 200 dates a year. I'm trying to do the opposite. I'm trying to tour less and spend more time at home in New Orleans. <laughs> I like the city. I like the music. I like the people. Everything's better in the South. No offense. <laughs> I think you make statements just to get a, a reaction. That's what I think. Well, I'm cheeky, like you said. Yeah, don't, 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 don't use my words against me, though. I mean, that's unfair. Two sleepy people by dawn's early light. Too much in love to say goodnight. In your video, I didn't like what you said. You said that jazz wasn't for black people or just for people who couldn't dance. <laughs> I didn't like that. I mean, I could respect it or whatever, and that's cool. So you think jazz is just for black people and people who can dance? Not really. I, I don't care. I just, I just felt like saying that I didn't like what you said. <laughs> <laughs> well, my point with that concept, with the whole album, is that jazz is, it's an art form that's about, you know, emotion and feeling, and that should be right. something that anybody can relate to. I think a lot of people feel left out of jazz these days they feel like oh it's only for black people or it's only for you know like fancy people or academic people or musicians or something like that a lot of people feel like it's not for them that's how they treat it in college like it's only yeah. for academics and stuff like that either way i think there's always some misconception oh it's for somebody else it's not for me and so i just want to do these songs in a way that anybody can listen to them and get what they're about and get the feeling I say that you can never tell who's affected by the power of a record. Yeah. And that's what I stick by or stick mm -hmm. to. I believe once you put a record out there, no matter if a black person makes it, a white person, Asian, mm -hmm. whatever, you don't know who it's going to affect. You don't know who it might touch, and they dedicate their entire lives to it. So yeah. I don't care who made jazz or who, whatever as far as jazz but I, I just kind of thought it was weird in the way you said it, so I, I, like, had to attack you on it. I don't feel attacked. Oh, come on, man. I got to be mean to you some you type of way. Attack, you got to try harder than that. Yeah, but I'm DJ Grandpa. I got to attack people. I got to be mean to people sometimes. Oh, you got to be a little meaner then, man. You're just not that mean. Oh, that's not cool. <laughs> I know what you're saying, and I was a little nervous when I made that video that people would be upset about that particular statement, jazz is not just for black people. But I do feel that way. I mean, I'm not black, and I've always loved jazz. You know, I started listening to it when I was very young, and I feel very affected by it, and I feel moved by it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't want it to be something that I'm excluded from, and I don't want it to be something anybody else is excluded from either. Yeah, but white people, never, white people never want to be excluded from anything. Well, nobody wants to be excluded from anything, especially music. Music is not about excluding people. It's about including people, don't you think? Yeah. Music is about being part of the human race. <laughs> if you have to ask me like that, I guess I, I have no other choice but to agree with you. <laughs> I want to be contrarian, but... I'm Jewish, so I'm not entirely white. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But we've all gotten mixed up since the 70s. Polish, Jewish, all of, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a different world. And I always feel like there's so many great jazz players that were Jewish. I've always felt like jazz music belonged to me as much as to anybody. <laughs> okay, on logic, you have me like 100%. Okay, 
I might not have liked the way you put it, but I only had to attack you on it. But then you won't even let me get that. So, I mean. Sorry. Yeah, that's all right. I mean, <laughs> that way you stay in control. But as a host, I'm supposed to be in control. Do you know what it means to miss New Orleans when that's where you live your heart? And there's something more. I miss the one I care for more than I miss New Orleans. Tell me more about this album because we need to promote you and your musical career not me your career <laughs> all right well here's what it's about for me so i'm a songwriter that's my main gig and that's what i've been doing professionally for you know about six years now i love songs i love writing songs and really what this album is about to me is me bringing my favorite songs of all time to a new audience. The people who listen to my music, a lot of them don't listen to jazz music. And what I want to do is bring this music to people who don't already know it. So I'm just trying to convey these songs in a way that feels really accessible to people so they can hear them and feel them and get what they're about. And even though, you know, these songs are 80 or 90 years old, and I don't think that matters. I think they're just as understandable as anything that's being written today. And I think they're better. So that's what the record is about to me, is just getting the songs across in a way that people really relate to. Okay. I never asked, what has been your musical background prior? Well, I grew up on folk music, and when I started playing, that was more the genre that I was sounding like or, you know, trying to sound like when I was a right. teenager. And then around the time I started playing and writing songs was the time I got into jazz. So my music has some influence from jazz. It has some influence from rock and roll and folk, and that's really what it's a mixture of, I would say. Okay, then. We got to fight over something, then. Okay. 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 What three jazz songs may be on this album? And I want to know, give me three. Three songs I'm going to do on this album? Yeah. Well, I'm going to do Sweet Lorraine. You know that one? I know it, but who's it by? I like the Louis Armstrong and Oscar Peterson version best. Louis Armstrong is like my favorite artist of all. I mean, I got a whole page of him, but I mean, Louis Armstrong so you can't is... can't argue with that? Right, right. I can't He's my favorite artist of all time, so... All right. Well, how about, uh, do you know what it means to miss New Orleans? I'm going to do that one. That's another Louis classic, man. Louis did that, but my favorite version is Billie Holiday with Teddy Wilson. Okay, I may not have heard that one, but I still can't fault you on the, the selection. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got to give you something else to work with yeah, here. Yeah, okay. One more. Then. Now, let me see. A lot of them are lesser known. They're not. I'm not really doing standards. I'm doing sort of B-sides for the most part. That's so those okay. two... Those two are the better known ones. I'm doing uh, Two Sleepy People. Do you know that one? Nah, you That's got by me on that. Hoagie Carmichael. Oh, I love Hoagie Carmichael, though. Do you? Yeah, I might have to play him on um, on Spotify tonight, just because you reminded me. Oh, nice. I love you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Two Sleepy People is my favorite song of his. It's an adorable song. <laughs> All right, I don't want you to give any away any more to the album and stuff like <laughs> okay. that. I, I think we've paid for the interview. I think you... You've yeah. given enough blood. <laughs> all right. So. Well, you liked all my choices, though. I'm sorry I couldn't give you more to fight with. Well, anyway. <laughs> Cheeky is what you are. Well, that's why I noticed it in you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I sure appreciate it. Thanks for reaching out to me, man. Oh, uh, no, no, no problem. After you insulted me about the black comment and all, I figured out. <laughs>
Figured I'd help you out. No, it wasn't I an insult. Come on. It wasn't an insult, but I definitely <laughs> wanted to give you a hard time about it. No such thing as bad publicity. Right, right, right. Okay. All right. Now, I don't believe that she just said that, that there's no such thing as bad publicity. But I think you need to check out what she said in the video for yourself. Yeah. Because I can't, I can't describe it enough. So go yeah, to right. kickstarter.com and type in Carsey Blanton. And jazz is for everybody. That's what I claim. Yeah, that's what she claims. And and next she claims the next album is going to be a country album. Kenny Chesney and, and, (laughs) and, and Jason Aldean and stuff like that. But for right now, we're concentrating jazz is for everybody. Go to kickstarter.com and check it out. And if you can't find it there, we'll provide the most flavorful, jazziest links possible at djgrandpa.com. Carsey. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I said I'll go through fire. And I'll go through fire. As he wants it. Oh, no, I see the spikeism. Good to see you, dude. What's up? Just wanted to say hello. Welcome to DJ Grandpa's crib. How you doing? Pretty good, man. And, uh... It's good to see you. I just finished watching your Bloomberg interview there with that lady. I can't remember her name right now, but that was pretty exciting. I guess my first question is, first question would be, how's it feel to be on Kickstarter? How are they treating you? It's education. Never done this before, but we're having fun. We're picking up momentum, and we're not going to stop till the last day. So we're looking to, you know, to exceed our goal. That's what we're working for. Uh, you're going to make your goal. I looked at the numbers, man, so... That looks that it looks really good for you. I'm glad you feel that way, but <laughs> we're not doing any end zone dance till we reach that one million two fifty. That's true. You can't. Can't, you can't do it. Can't do it. We're getting four or five hours of sleep. Everybody on the grind, not just me. Everybody here, forty acres in the middle. We got a team, street team, and I also got to thank all the people, the over three thousand people who backed us so far to get us over seven hundred thousand dollars. I saw on your Kickstarter video, your interest was peaked after you saw the Veronica Mars and the Zach Braff. Yes. What did you think about Kickstarter before then? Well, before, it was just something that my students used to get the completion funds for their thesis films, but the sums were like $5,000, $10,000, $20,000. So I never considered it as a vehicle to finance one of my films. I believe it was after the Million Man March when you did the Get on the Bus with him? Get on the yeah. Bus. You did like an unconventional way of raising the... Well, that wasn't me, but uh, Ruby Cannon, one of the producers, he just went to some prominent African-Americans, males, and asked them to put in for the money. And that's how that movie got financed. It just seemed like kind of a barn raising, kind of like the way Kickstarter, some people have referred to it as a barn raising. Well, here's the thing, though. People, and this is no disrespect to Yancey and Perry, the co-founders and creators of Kickstarter, but people have been doing Kickstarter a long time. It's just that there was no such thing as the internet, so you couldn't have social media. Right. Social media was what we did on She's Gonna Have It, calling people up on the phone. Luckily, I was before call ID, writing letters, writing postcards, and just getting out there and drum up the support you need to do your art. If you had to like write a book or a novel or a screenplay or something, Spike Lee and where he is at this moment in time, and I'm sure it's a stupid question or whatever. No, it's not a stupid question at all. I just don't know how to answer it. For me, I'm a very practical person. I don't try to look too far ahead. I definitely don't look behind me. And right now, 
we have 10 days to reach our goal, 11 days really to reach our goal. So that's where all our focus is on. We have a goal of $1,250,000. And if you don't reach your goal, you don't get nothing. You don't get squat. Nada. All right. The question comes up, uh, Spike Lee, why someone so big like you, Spike Lee, why someone so rich like you goes to Kickstarter. And I'm not trying to get you to attack me either by telling me about your finances. I don't know because I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that no matter what I believe, the community of Kickstarter has already decided that when they funded Veronica Mars, they already decided that when they funded Zach Braff. So if you have $100 million in your pocket, they still believe that they have the right to vote for you or not vote for you because it's a community. Well, I wish I did have $100 million. And there are many times where I financed my own films. In fact, the film Red Hook Summer, I saw finance. I did not know about Kickstarter back then. And Kickstarter is for everybody. The owners and the co-founders of Kickstarter says for everybody. And so this being America, here we are. No one is putting a gun in anybody's head. You feel that you cannot support Spike Lee because I'm too established. Or you think that I'm a billionaire. That is your right. I just wanted to say thanks, man, because I've been watching you, I guess, since everybody's been watching you. So I guess everybody says that. How old were you in 86? I think I was a sophomore at Hampton University or something like that. You're a Hamptonian? Yeah, I got a beef with you about that. Though. Exactly. I don't even want to talk. <laughs> oh, man, man. Oh, my God. My favorite movie before I saw She's Gotta Have It was The Blues Brothers, Jake and Elwood Blues. I've watched it like a thousand times. Right. And then all of a sudden I hear about this black filmmaker. Everybody's like, we gotta go support and we gotta go see this cat. And we go to the theater and it's Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It. And I'm like zoned at the screen. I'm like, oh my God, I may have a new favorite film of all time. I was like... I mean, I guess I fell in love. I don't know you because everybody said it, but I guess I fell in love with you from that sort of point of view back then. You know, I was like a Spike Lee fanatic until I got out of college or whatever. So, you know, I followed you to Howard and talked to you a couple times at conventions and stuff like that. I saw you go off on people about Aristotle and Greek uh, structure as far as plays and theatrics and... <laughs> And, you know, so it, it was funny, man, to see your, your life progress and stuff. And I'm not saying I'm not a fan of yours now. I'm just saying I, that I, I haven't really followed you since Mo Better Blues. You never saw Malcolm X? I don't even think I ever watched it, man. And that's no disrespect to you. Well, maybe you do take it as disrespect, but... And that, that's okay. I accept that. You can watch what you want to watch. But usually that's the one people don't miss, though. Not with Denzel Washington's performance as Brother Malcolm. That's what. Man, I didn't get into Denzel until Netflix a couple years ago. I, I guess to make a long story short, my um, this doesn't even add up, but my beef with you from Hampton was we would watch Spike Lee movies and he'd be like, Howard, Spellman, Morehouse, and everybody in the theater would be waiting for him. And Hampton, he would just pass by Hampton Fisk. And we'd be like, oh, come on, man. And what does he have, something against Howard? It's like, didn't, you know, it's like, didn't part of his relatives go to Hampton? Um, my wife's, both her parents went to Hampton and her sister. I love all historical black colleges. Maybe I just had to split my mind at that moment. And I love your sister, man. I mean, it was the hair that got me. <laughs> you aren't the only one. <laughs> 
So that's it, man. I, I, those are all my admissions to you, man. You made two of the, my most famous products of all time. You did She's Gotta Have It, and then you did Spike Meets Flav. Oh, the special 12-inch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are two of my favorite joints of all time. I think it's funny. Somebody played it for me recently. I forgot I had done that. So anyway, I want to thank you for that. So anybody out there, I know this has been a conflicted interview. I've been all over the place, but I'll sew it together. You're doing your thing, baby. I'm with you. I'm with you. you know, I'm appealing to everybody. Kickstarter.com for as little as $5. Get down with us. Let's go. Get down. This is the movement. We're making history for as little as $5. Every amount you pledge, there's a different reward for that. Let's make it happen. Dude, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for just thanks for all you've done over the last 20, 30 years, man. Three decades, baby. Three decades. Three decades. It's been a pleasure to watch it, period. Three decades in the making. And someone told them, they were like, you're talking to an icon there. You're talking. I was like, oh, now I got to call Spike an icon? It's like, yeah. I was like, God. Maestro. <laughs> Maestro, the taste tester. <laughs> Nah, that's what they call me in Italy. Maestro, maestro, maestro. All right. Because as filmmakers, we're conducting. That's true. All right, dude, I know you're busy, and I'll see you later, and, and wish you the best in the film industry. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank all our guests. I'd like to thank our listeners. Each week, we couldn't do it without you guys. A special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams and to my mentor, The Mumbler, for providing music to DJ Grandpa's Crypt. Thanks to Theron Kennedy, our Director of Marketing, and to Jeffrey Banks, Bertram Zeke, and Aaron Levine, our Assistant Editors. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's Crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is AFN.